The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, May 17th, with new music, by the way. Today's episode is What to Do with the Bad Men. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have the great June Thomas, a senior managing producer of Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So we have a big, big, big announcement. The cabal, that's the three of us and the producers and everyone else, have made a decision. Double X is going weekly. Listeners have been asking for years, and so we are finally doing it. We're going to add new voices and perspectives to the show. You can tune in next week for our first new, new double X. And there's another thing, which is that the name double X is kind of outdated, somewhat for obvious reasons. You mean the one that, uh, you know, not all women have two X chromosomes? Yes. I feel like the name has become increasingly shameful as the yes. politics has yes. passed us. Yes. Um, and so we've all grown kind of increasingly uncomfortable with it. So we have batted around about a million ideas. But before we make a decision, we want to hear from you listeners. So if you have any great ideas of new names for the show, please tweet us at Hannah Rosen, at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, or send it to our email, doublexgabfest at slate.com. We would love to hear your ideas. All right. I just have one thing. So I just want to note, uh, I did make a goof at the end of the last episode. Uh, when Noreen recommended a book by Iris Murdoch, I said, oh, her sister. And Iris Murdoch was, of course, an only child as an only child. I was particularly ashamed for having assigned her a sibling. And yes, as everybody suggested, I was indeed thinking of two other famous uh, writing sisters of that generation, A.S. Byatt, Antonia Byatt and Margaret Drabble. Uh, but uh, so thanks, everyone, for being very kind in, remind- in pointing out my mistake. Well, and that just makes me want to reread Possession, which I haven't read since I was about, you know, 14. You yeah. read Possession at 14? Wow. Didn't you read things you shouldn't have when you were uh, young? No? I guess I did. I just seemed so sophisticated. No wonder you're so smart. <laughs> I don't think I got it, which is why I need to reread it. <laughs> That's probably true. All right. Well, let's start our show. First, we're going to talk about the men, the bad men. They seem to be plotting their post-Me Too comebacks. What do we think about that? Second, Gina Haspel, the sweet-faced overseer of a torture site, probably the new head of the CIA as of this week. What do we think about her? And finally, Marquesa, the clothing line run by Georgina Chapman, Harvey Weinstein's estranged wife, made a comeback this week, a little nervously. What do we think about that? And then in our Slate Plus segment, Noreen, what are we talking about? We are talking about whether both the concept and the phrase mommy brain are sexist. Yes. I'm looking forward to that one. (laughs) Having been accused of mommy brain here and there in my life, I would like to discuss that. Okay, let's jump into our first topic. Uh, Here and there, those bad men who disappeared suddenly are showing their faces again. Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Louis C.K., they are in small ways testing the waters. Is it too soon? Is it always too soon? Can you ever come back from this kind of thing? And whose job is it to make sure that you are better? Um, So I'd like to start with Charlie Rose because he's the one that, you know, he's the one that kind of got this ball rolling of what do we do with these men. It was a story in The Hollywood Reporter, and it's almost comically formulaic, these stories. It's like, I think it was lonely and brilliant was the pull-out quotes for some reason. <laughs> the, the image they want to paint is of a a kind of, you know, um, a giant. A, a lion in exile. Exactly. It's like a cultural giant sitting by himself at a restaurant, looking nervously around to see, is no one talking to me because I'm a pariah? And is that better or worse than no one talking to me because they've forgotten all about me? And then, you know, swoops in a, the Tina Brown character uh, to come say that, oh, I, you know, to float a project of Charlie Brown's that he would like to interview. Charlie Charlie Brown. (laughs) I mean, Charlie Rose, sorry, uh, to to float a project of Charlie Rose's to say that he would like to interview uh, other men in exile, which, you know, could have been Tina Brown. It's kind of like a like a wicked Tina Brown idea. So who knows what role Charlie Rose had in it. Uh, But what did you guys think when you first read just you first implanted in your head the idea of a possible TV show of, say, Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer sitting across from each other. My first thought was, what had happened. fuck the fuck off. I feel like <laughs> I have, I cannot, I could not have 
more anger and less interest in a project, even though I know business-wise it's probably, you know, would do what what television is supposed to do and, and attract viewers. Come on. But do you feel that way about Louis C.K.? Louis C.K., I have a slightly different view about, partly because I feel like he, everybody knew his his failing, his sin. Like, it was an open secret. That doesn't make it okay. But I feel like it was already kind of priced into his reception. And also, mm-hmm. honestly, his age makes a slight difference to me. He's 50 years old. He's also reportedly, you know, doing comedy clubs. He's, he's you know, being somewhat humble about it. Um, I, And also, I would... I have to say that I have never been interested in any of these men. I did not care for Charlie Rose's uh, show and his shtick. I I didn't really understand why he kept getting so many jobs. Uh, I wasn't a watcher of the Today Show. You know, most of these men are not people who are of interest to me. Louis C.K. is as close to somebody who's kind of part of of like my media diet or my entertainment repertoire. Um, So I do... You know, maybe it's not for the best reasons that I feel slightly differently about him. But come on, it's time we found some new people. These men, you know, we've talked in the past about how there are some kind of due process issues with some of these guys, but there are no questions about any of the people that we've talked about. And I just think it is a pathetic statement about our lack of imagination, our reliance on big names in the name, in the era of, you know, big TV or, you know, the the golden, the time of television, peak TV, as we call it, when there are just so many shows that we're feeling that we have to rely on these established names. But you know what? I just don't think that Charlie Rose, who also is 76 as an old, I feel, you know, can mention that. It's time to find someone else. He's not that good. Ditto Matt Lauer. Move on, people. Right. Well, it's not like they do something that other people can't do. Like, in part, what people tuned in for was like, the personality, the reputation, and those have been pretty well tarnished. The idea that we should not lump all these people in together is pretty obvious to me that, like, the, the crimes of a Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, are, are to me quite different than those of Louis C.K., right? Like, he's mm-hmm. the interesting case because he does have a unique sensibility. His, um, you know, sins are the farthest in the past. Um, they you know, are perhaps less severe in certain ways. I mean, they are, I would say, less severe than, than you know, he didn't rape anyone, right? Like, which um, in many of these cases did happen. Um, so so the question for me with him is, like, how soon is too soon? Like, I think now is too soon. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what is he owed, right? Like, it seems obvious that his comeback will be, like, talking about, this like we don't actually want to hear charlie rose sit there with matt lauer and be like it was tough you know the the seamless options in the hamptons are not great and i just couldn't go out to the store you know but but like (laughs) (laughs) that's what they'll talk about i think they're both in the hamptons just like i think they feel the way tom brokaw feels don't you think secretly that's how they feel like they secretly feel like this is just a bunch of bullshit i mean i don't know that that's true but it does it does like until you get the sense that they don't feel that way right anyway finish your finish it just okay so so if you know if louis ck comes back in two years and he's coming back and talking about this in an interesting way which is how you can sort of picture this happening like he does a sort of not funny funny but not funny comedy (laughs) set and then it gets celebrated as raw and you know like he's a different he's a changed man etc etc like i can totally see that playing out in a way that would the culture would receive it well and and you know if if Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer did that show people would just laugh it would be a troll it would be like ridiculous but in 2 years or whatever the culture might have might be ready to forgive so i guess my question is you know is that the right way should it like should it happen in that way is it good for us if that happens as a culture right if we like have some kind of healing around it like it's super raw right now. And like June, I get angry at the idea of certain of these men believing that they can make a comeback. If they were to be able to make a comeback, it would be like, well, what did this, right. what mattered in this moment, right? Yeah. Like, did this have any impact at all? Um, I'm interested in your second question, which is what are they entitled to? You guys are making <clears throat> me think of this a little differently because, you know, what I'm always thinking about is how comfortable am I with a culture that's merciless and unforgiving, no matter what the crime 
You know, I mean, there's rehabilitation for really terrible crimes, like in, in our in our in our spiritual minds, just in the way we want to think of ourselves as people. At least I do. Like, there's always a possibility for redemption and change. We're not at that moment right now. But then your second question, Noreen, is you don't. You're not necessarily. This actually really helps me. You're not necessarily entitled to like have your TV show back. You know, like maybe you're entitled to be a human being. Like you're entitled maybe, at some point maybe. to not be a pariah <laughs> yeah. in our eyes. Even a murderer is entitled to rehabilitation. Like, like we believe in redemption, um, but. But that doesn't mean that you get to have your your fame back, well, you know, your status. Well, especially when, you know, these were maybe the one, these are the guys that we're talking about in part because they were people who earned many, many millions per year for, you know, and I, I realize it's 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 silly to say for doing that much because only a few people can indeed do those jobs. But more people than those three, you know, whatever. Um what they they there's no, there's been no indication from any of these guys that they even feel contrition uh you know there's there's not been any kind of reparation there's not been any kind of of even apology as far as i'm aware of and so you're definitely not getting your 25 million dollar a year contract back uh right now buddy well i think the questions of forgiveness and cultural like their place in the culture are slightly separate ones yeah. right like um the question of forgiveness like it doesn't matter if i forgive charlie rose or not it's actually the, the women that he specifically hurt i think that those are the people who um you know have the have the difficult problem of wrestling with their own concept of forgiveness forgiveness and whether they feel that that they can do that right like as a culture i think it's more about um figuring out like what are our values, right? And and um, I don't think that the redemption narrative is actually a value that's under threat in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's everywhere, and and I think that there is just some signal. Wait, no, of course it, we're we're we have we have no patience for redemption at this particular moment. We have no patience for examination of particularities of the crime. This is so not a redemptive moment. Like the fact that we say we believe in redemptive stories or we like to read about them has no relationship to what we actually do and actions we take regarding people who have done, you know, crimes that we no longer tolerate. We're completely intolerant of it. In the white... This the, is... Uh, I mean, I have in my lifetime never seen a moment culturally where, you know, we have, we have just decided, and probably for good reasons, because it moves the cause forward much more quickly when the cause has just been stuck to just push people over a cliff. Like, it's well, not a redemptive is, What moment. is this cliff, though? This cliff is that they've lost their multi-million dollars per year jobs. They're not in jail. They're not, you know, they, they're not, they've not lost their, their many, des, you know, desirable properties. What kind of, you know, this redemption that we're talking about, what exactly is it? That they get that job back again? I mean, I don't... No, they're just social pariahs. That's all. Well, like, they they're still gazillionaires. I, I mean... This is also like, we are still in the white hot heat of the moment. If you yeah. take the long term, America definitely believes in redemption. Like, okay, maybe Charlie Rose won't be on, um, you know, his... 17 his own, shows per week. Right, but he might be on Dancing with the Stars. Like, there are whole culture industries in America built on, like, people, like, crawling their way back up and coming back and, like... Like, you know, it just I think we believe in like redemptive narratives for show. We don't actually we are the least forgiving prison culture in the entire That's world. True. We are the only prison culture based on the idea that actually people don't ever really change. Like in Europe, there is built into their prison culture the idea that people actually do change. You can be in prison for a billion years and be up for parole and you will never get free. So we th- we, we pretend we believe in redemption, but actually we just believe in stories. But, well, but, but, but the the prison question you can't separate out from like race right. and class issues, frankly. And these right. these are exactly the kind of men that like America loves to forgive. But okay, what I'm actually right. more interested in as like a moral question is less these incredibly famous men who we've all talked about, and more let's say an executive at Nike who's lost his job, or or, or like Blake Farenthold. Who's you know the 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 member of Congress who had to resign after it was revealed that he spent like eighty four thousand dollars of of his constituents or of taxpayer money to settle a sexual harassment lawsuit and now just got this six figure lobbying job like 
Screw you. Well, well, screw him. But what about the person who um, isn't famous, like is obviously well off, but, um, you know, not set up for life, right? Like Matt Lauer doesn't need money. And like what we're talking about here is like whether his ego is going to get properly stroked every morning. Like, fuck that. But okay, you're you're a guy with four kids and you've done something bad, right? Like you have... Um, you know, not Harvey Weinstein level bad, but bad enough that you lost your job at a Fortune 500 company in this wave. Um, so what to me, it's more interesting, like, does the culture or do these companies or other companies owe these people forgiveness? Right. Like one of the one of the things that people have been saying over and over in this moment is like people talk about a white man losing a job like it's a death. And that is really striking and upsetting that the, that, that the language of that is like you know, it's so severe. But it is true that like, if you are not a wealthy person, and you lose your job and you have a family like that is hard, right? You are not entitled to anything. But okay, what is what is the like, uh, period of time where that person, you know, and how, how what's the process for that person to be forgiven to get a second chance? I think that we are in a moment of non forgiveness. And it's probably necessary to move the cause forward. Mm -hmm. Like I had a conversation with uh, uh, a lawyer friend who who does um, workplace employment law. And she said she's seen many, many spurious cases overall in workplace employment, you know, where it's a case of like somebody claims the boss is violating some rule, but in fact, they're just being mean. But almost none of of sexual harassment cases, like that almost every case of sexual harassment that she's seen, and actually she said every case mm. um, is valid, like the person was sexually harassed. It's hard to bring those cases forward. So there is an endemic problem in, you know, that, 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 that we don't see in the news and that hasn't necessarily been solved by where we are now. So I think a temporary moment of non-forgiveness, ugh, I can live, I, I'm okay with it. But I think long-term, you know, you know, even when, when you look at small communities, as I did in my, in the last Invisibilia story I did, which was a, a sexual harassment case, a Me Too case, um, it's nobody's job to necessarily to bring the person back into the community or to figure out what to do with the person afterwards. It's nobody's job to see where they go and if they're just, you know, committing those 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 crimes in lots of other communities. Um, it's kind of the element of the process that we've forgotten about and that we don't really have a good way to deal with it. Um, but um, but we should or we should think about it or we should have some, you know, moral reckoning about it like we're doing now. But to have a temporary period where you're just like enough, fuck them, you know, don't want to deal with them, I think is OK. Yeah. It's not like the problem solved yet. And I think that we should, you know, say that one of the reasons we're talking about this is that Katie Jan Baker had an interesting piece in The Times where she talked about, you know, she has covered the um, campus sexual assault crisis. And at first she was kind of like, I don't, you know, like as as long as these um, people have been dealt with, like, why does it matter? Like what happens to them afterwards? And then she realized, no, it actually can. There can be a curdling effect. Right. When you just sort of you can you can create a reactionary culture by by this lack of forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Or by this just totally cavalier attitude towards what do we do with the bad men? Fuck them, you know, like we don't care about them, that it can create um, something, you know, a backlash or whatever yeah. whatever it is. Um, the other thing that, that I feel like we're not actually talking enough about is um, the idea of demotion as a possible punishment, right? Because right? if, if it's true, and I think it is, that so many of these crimes are just as much about power as they are about sex, and these are mostly men who are in positions of power over women and other people and using that in a bullying way, that like, okay, so the executive who gets fired at Nike, you know, maybe doesn't get to make a lateral move. Like maybe he starts in the mailroom, right, at his next job or whatever it is. Um, maybe that's one that's way. That's an interesting yeah. idea yeah. is to demote people because there's so much kind of shame in that and reckoning with your own loss of power. I mean, again, white man gets demoted, but <laughs> right. still, that is, right. that is right. not a bad idea. Well, listeners, if you have he- heard of any positive ways of dealing with the situation seen in your workplace, in workplaces of friends, cases where where a community or workplace has, has, has found a way to properly punish someone without quite turning them into a pariah, I would be curious to hear them. So email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, our next topic. Gina Haspel, as of this taping, which is we tape on Wednesday mornings, is likely to be confirmed as the first woman director of the CIA. She is a career operative, worked at the CIA more than 30 years. Uh, she says she was very good at getting secret information in dark alleys, though we don't actually know that much about what she actually did. But we do know that she was involved in one of the black site torture programs after 9-11, which she has since said the CIA should not have done. And I think we're mostly fascinated with her because she's a mild-faced, friendly-looking, middle-aged lady spy. Okay, so let's talk about the torture first, since that's the thing. That's the only story that, that seems to have come out about her, although there are probably many more. June, can you say a little bit about what we know about her role in torture? So as you say, she's a 33-year veteran of the CIA. She's, uh, uh, you know, all her career, she has been an operative, which is say not an analyst, not sitting in Langley, but out in the field. Uh, she has been a, a, a station chief four times, and she and in 2002, so just to clarify, a year after 9/11, she was put in charge of a uh, of a site in Thailand uh, where people were suspected terrorists uh, were renditioned, that is, just kind of pulled off the streets in places and taken and uh, with in a in a sort of situation where very little was revealed, were subjected to uh, what were euphemistically called uh, harsh interrogation techniques, which at this point I think we've stopped uh, hiding uh, from that from the term torture. And these were... Although Dick Cheney yeah. recently owned it. He yeah. said he'd do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we should say that President Trump has also said that, you know, that he's pro-waterboarding, which is one of these... He said he loves it. He <laughs> said, I love waterboarding. That's what he said. <sighs> Um, and, you know, there some people still do believe that torture uh, can can elicit information, which is a view that I think has generally been rejected. Uh, in 2014, there was a, a study, the, a congressional study, um, including, you know, that involved people who were generally sympathetic that found that um, the CIA had grossly exaggerated or mischaracterized, let's just say mischaracterized the amount of information that they had uh gotten uh, under torture. Um, so yeah, in 2002, she was in charge of a site in Thailand where uh, at least one suspect was subjected to these techniques. Uh, and so there's, you know, even though much of her record is still classified, um, as you said, Hannah, there have been selective declassifications of her record uh, for this uh, um, confirmation process. Uh, but, you know, so there, but there's a lot about her career that we don't know. But we do know that she was in charge of a torture center. Although to get even more granular, she was brought into this torture site after someone had been waterboarded 83 times, a suspect, and had to be rehabilitated. That's when they brought her in for six weeks. And the torture she oversaw only happened, I think, three times. So so there is a there's sort of detail there about at least that's the story that the CIA is presenting now because the CIA has done an unprecedented kind of for the CIA. It doesn't look like everybody else's public relations campaign, but of trotting out important CIA officials who normally don't like to speak to the press to kind Kind of create uh, a story or a picture about Gina Haspel uh, and support her confirmation. But but to get still more yeah. granular, uh, yeah. So she she used waterboarding less, but she she was by the way was the person making these calls very much in this situation, and she used it right away. Right. So an Al Qaeda suspect, Abd Al Rahim Al Nashiri, um, was brought in, and apparently like. Torture was the the first resort, right? Like on the first day, he was apparently giving up information and they still went ahead and tortured him, which is a call that she made, right? And the only person to actually uh, protest about what they were doing to this person, to this suspect, was actually the person 
leading the interrogation on the ground was the torture. It wasn't Gina Haspel herself. So on the one hand, she's being like, you know, like she's being set up by the CIA as like she was she was like the cleanup torture. She was trying to like, you know, wean us off of it. She was the nicotine patch kind of thing. On the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) you know, she was the den. She was the den mother of the, you know, of the of our Thailand black site. On the other hand, like seems to me that she was very embedded in this culture and was like uh, uh, that's the behavior of someone who zealously believes in torture almost you know not as a fact-finding thing but that's like kind of like a bloodlust you know um reaction no, it's not it's not bloodlust your nicotine patch was a better <laughs> bloodlust it's like a creature of the culture i mean what i'm thinking about is our expectation of her is that she she in the past, had been a whistleblower. That's what we're asking. You know, why where, didn't that she... From? Oh, you mean because, we wanted her to be... She wasn't, We right? want her now to be a whistleblower. She was not a whistleblower. But what we're essentially asking, because she she was essentially, you know, doing her duty. She'd worked there for... You know, she's a, she's a, she's a veteran. It's clear what, what, what... She's a person who's married to her job, who's worked within the institution, who's not really challenged the rules of the institution. Um, um, and we don't... You know, we have so... We don't really know all the, like, little, little details of what she did and what decisions yeah, because she they made. Just- destroyed the tapes because they destroyed the tapes. Well, that's actually more disturbing to me is the destruction of the tape. But but first the question of we expect her to be a whistleblower or the culture is expecting that. And and can I just ask you guys for a second, do you think that has a gender whiff about it? That we expect a woman and a woman who looks, has a kindly face like she does, um, you know, he looks like, you know, the mom of your your new dorm mate or something. Like she has such a this sort of gentle look about her to, to have taken taken like our questioning of her is purely moral there wasn't a lot of questioning about you know would you would you interfere with the Mueller investigation in russia which is a totally important question not really asked it's it's all about her moral compass do you think that that is gendered i don't know that it is i'm asking you guys honestly i think it's definitely is and i will say just speaking very personally that i my first response was was to kind of fall for that you know, and it's also I should we should also note that um, if Haspel had not been confirmed, the person who was teed up kind of, you know, the second choice, uh, which was, you know, universally accepted that she would the person who would be nominated next is another woman, Susan Gordon, who has slightly less um, as fewer liabilities because she was an analyst. So she was in Langley rather than in the field. So clearly there is an attempt to bring in a woman uh and I think that it's a smart move. I mean, there are certain things. So as much as I decry torture, that I think it's appalling that her role in 2005 in destroying the tapes of the torture, uh, which, you know, which she was enthusiastic about by all reports. There are, certain, you know, for a while I was like, well, look, I think it's really good that it's some that the next director of the CIA should be somebody from inside the CIA. This will be the first time since 1991 when Robert Gates was a CIA, uh, you know, employee turned head. Uh, and I do, th- I don't think it's good to bring people from outside into an organization like that. And it seems that she, re- you know, very much has the support of the agency. And if you want to have somebody in that position, chances are at this point it's going to be someone who is tainted by their involvement in torture. And let's note that it was considered legal at the time. At the time, it was not, you know, there were findings from, you know, the Department of Justice that it, that these harsh interrogation techniques, as we call them at that time, were acceptable. So, for a moment, I was thinking, look, uh, you know, now we're deciding that this isn't acceptable because it's a woman. And, and I, I definitely had a moment of thinking, oh, you know, how bad could it be? And I think it was that I had fallen for, you know, her 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 gender. And then I remembered my sort of something that I think the most the thing that I most regret having said on an episode of Double X Gabfest, which was when Christine Quinn did not win uh, the mayoral race. And I was really mad because I thought, oh, so this, so when a woman who's served her time and has kind of done her apprenticeship and is a lesbian, and then when it's her moment, she gets rejected. And like the rules always change when it's a woman's turn. 
And then I realized, you know, a little bit later when that first uh, like burning response had, had cooled a little bit. Yeah, you know, one of the things she did in her apprenticeship was support Michael Bloomberg's stop and frisk policy, which essentially just, you know, chose certain sections of the population to subject to certain behavior that other other aspects of the population, other parts of the population weren't subject to. And that ended up with them being in jail, breaking up families, being absolutely ruinous. And all I could see was, but it's a woman's turn. And this feels like the same thing that I allowed myself to think it's the woman's turn. And instead, I didn't think she's a torturer. She's totally benefit. She's completely benefiting from being a woman. Absolutely. It's like, you know, and even the narrative that like she's she's just a she was just a good soldier. It was legal. She was just doing which is true. There were people who stood up to it, you know, within the organization, Mm -hmm. and she very clearly did not. Right. And the point that a lot of people have made is like this is and she's you know, she's in these confirmation hearings. She's saying on the one hand, oh, like, I, you know, I think, you know, torture doesn't work. But we got some good stuff out of that guy. Right. So she's 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 sticks her maybe she's the kind of person who sticks her hand up in the wind maybe she's not like she's a spy who knows like how much of herself she's really revealing these confirmation hearings but like she doesn't appear to have the public history of someone with a lot of backbone who would stand up to say like a madman president who wanted to torture whoever he wanted to torture um and like just because she looks like she could be my aunt like doesn't mean that you know we should we should like I, i I don't know, Hannah. I think it's interesting that you zoomed in on the the moral question as being, um, like, in some way soft or or um, like like not the question, point. right? Not the point. To me, it's like the heart of the question, right? Like the CIA. Like we know she'll be good at running the place, probably, right? She knows the culture. She seems like you know everyone who works there is like super thrilled to get her confirmed. But like, what does the CIA stand for in the world um, as an actor is like, I don't know, I think kind of an important question. And yeah. and naming and confirming her says yeah. that we don't care. Yeah, about when it. we zoom out to the world, I can see it more clearly, the damage of, of choosing someone like her despite the debate over torture. When you get closer, I think... Man, these are jobs with just a sick amount of moral ambiguity. You, It's literally right after 9-11. You don't have that much power. Like she's, you know, she's not like a flunky, but she's she's not, she doesn't actually call the shots. Um, she's there at a temporary Oh my God, period. she has so much power. Are you kidding? I mean, she did have a lot of power. She's some, I mean, I think that's, again, something that's been a little bit elided that, she, you know, she was she was in charge of that site and she has been station chief in some really important CIA operations. Yeah. And it's true that she doesn't. Every, she, like everyone else in the CIA, will not sign up to the mainstream line that we don't get information out of torture, which has been well, well documented and reported. They just won't give. You know, mm-hmm. they'll all the line the CIA takes now about that is we don't know. It's impossible right. to know whether we would have gotten that information without the threat of torture. That's their official line, which she takes, too. And I think, I mean, the, the one thing that gives me comfort, although not from the world perspective, because I think the world perspective is the headline like American CIA uh, uh, appoints torturer as 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 chief you lady, know? lady torturer. Um, Lady torture, exactly. So so that's the headline all over the world. Uh, but she is on record now saying that it was a mistake. Right. And that she wouldn't do it again and wouldn't order it again and would refuse orders. Right. I mean, I also think that she's benefiting from like one of my least favorite kinds of feminism, which we saw yesterday um, or Tuesday. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand was giving some speech and she said, you know, if it were Lehman sisters instead of Lehman brothers, I don't think it would have fallen. Like just the idea that like... Uh, <laughs> Like people still say that line. Yes. She said it yesterday. It got roundly mocked um, as it should have. But it just it like appeals to the worst, like clumsy kind of like women are just better than men. And like sometimes we are. But like the the idea that like if you want something, don't ask the busy woman torturer. Right. Right. right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't need to. <laughs> do it 83 times. She got it done. Oh, and three. I'm, sorry, that was really <laughs> dark. Right. Oh, my God. Ugh. All right. Well, torture jokes for everyone. <laughs> That's how we roll. Let's move on to our next very important topic. <laughs> how do I do this? <laughs> I told you the transition Red was going to be bad. Red carpet dresses. You <laughs> did say you. the transition would be bad. 
from torture to the red carpet. <laughs> from torture story. to high heels. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's good. That is good. That's why you're an editor at New York Magazine. All right. Transition awkwardly accomplished. Let's talk about Marquesa, the red carpet dress brand owned by Georgina Chapman, who's Harvey Weinstein's estranged wife. When the Weinstein story first broke, people backed off from the brand, leery of the association, thinking of Chapman as an enabler. And this week, the brand has made a sudden, as if orchestrated, comeback (laughs) with Scarlett Johansson wearing the dress to the Met Gala and Anna Wintour defending Chapman in her letter to the editor, repositioning Chapman as a victim and not an enabler. Um, You know, it's rare that we peer into the fashion world here on this show and the kind of machinations of the fashion world. It really just seems arcane. It's like an arcane craft or like mafia dons or something. It's just like they all decide something and they all live on Mars and then they sort of make a decision and then and then every once in a while it rises to the main stream. Um, it was a very odd moment. But Noreen, before we dive into the oddness of it, can you just tell us like who's Georgina Chapman? What is this brand? Why do we why do we care? So Georgina Chapman is kind of a like a, an English rose type who um, was a model and had this fashion line that was not super successful. She started with a friend when she was quite young. Um, it was not super successful. She made very beautiful, almost old fashioned kind of um, couture ish. Pretty dresses for pretty women, as it was described. Yes. Very elaborate, though. Very elaborate. Very like you're going to wear it through the premiere of, you know, whatever movie you're in. Um, And then she uh, got hooked up with Harvey Weinstein, who she began dating. And and then suddenly Marquesa was worn by a lot of actresses who were in his movies and then they subsequently would appear often on the cover of Vogue, let's say in a Marquesa dress. So, um, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Anna Winter um, had uh, some kind of a friendship, let's say, or, or you know, a, they traveled in similar circles, big Democratic donor circles, power circles of New York. Um, anyway, the takeaway with Marquesa is that the, the relevant thing here is that like her and I'm not saying that the dresses aren't pretty but no one was wearing them in the same way until she married Harvey Weinstein who maybe made it non-optional for some of these actresses to wear these dresses um and the interesting thing to me about the Anna Winter rehabilitation of um well say what it is and you know I'm sure not all of our listeners have read the letter to the editor in this month's edition of Vogue yeah so, so <laughs> You mean that's not the first thing that you turn to on the first of the month? Um, and and we should say that it was also um, accompanied by a profile by Jonathan Van Meener of Georgina Chapman's life now. And you sort of see her selling the townhouse that she lived in with Harvey and, um, you know, moving upstate and talking about how she didn't know. And so Anna's Anna Winter's um, uh, editor's letter, you know, says that she firmly believes that Georgina did not know and that, you know, we, we should not treat her as collateral damage and, and that, you know, just because she was married to the guy doesn't mean that she should, you know, she should suffer for his sins. Um, so this is sort of a complicated thing, right? Like, should the wife of someone suffer for their sins? But that that reading, first of all, like, um, presumes that Georgina Chapman knew nothing about this, that maybe she just like and, and you know, I'm inclined to, to cut her some slack and say that she... I, I doubt that she knew that her husband was raping women, you know, um, but she certainly had to know that he was pulling strings on her behalf and that sometimes the strings could be um, pulled in ugly ways. Um, the other I mean, the other thing that's happening in this editor's letter, which Stella Bugby of The Cut pointed out, I think very smartly, is that like in some ways Anna is trying to cleanse her own sins here. Right. To say, oh, not not all the women who, um, you know, who helped out these bad men or who promoted or who who functioned in symbiosis with these bad men, don't blame them, you know? Like, a lot of these um, photographers who have subsequently been accused of sexual assault um, are, you know, all over the pages of Vogue, have had these um, relationships with Anna Winter over the years. She, as Stella pointed out in her letter, was um, she sort of spearheaded the campaign to... Um, to 
enable the comeback of John Galliano, who like uh, said some pretty anti-Semitic things a few years ago. She she seems to always be the first in line to sort of absolve people of their sins. You know, maybe that is because she's the high priestess of fashion or maybe she just has a like um, she has a vested interest in um you know, making it seem like these people are not that bad because she's in some ways complicit with them. What do you guys think? To me, it read just like a power play. I mean, I Uh just was skeezed out by the whole thing. Like, it just read like a mafia don writing a letter. Like, this is, I have declared that she didn't (laughs) know about it. This, you know, she, this, this is, these are the new realignments of power and I'm still in charge. Like, that's all it was about for me. Like, she has no idea what Georgina knows. None of us really have any idea. Georgina is bought into a worldview, which Anna Wintour is bought into where it's perfectly fine for your husband to strong arm actresses into wearing your dresses. And I mean, can you imagine Anna Wintour ever having a kind of culpability or a, a kind of being moved to, you know, to, to reckon with her own complicity in a lot of the sins that are coming out lately against models and with photographers. She's never going to do it. It's just well, not her thing. She has to privately, just as a human being. You can't not reckon with that. But I have she would, no idea. She would never do it publicly. I mean, she's just such a power operator. Yeah. I have no idea what she does and doesn't do. Um, but also, I, you know, the profile of Georgina Chapman yes. was quite interesting <laughs> because yeah. much more interesting than the editor's letter because you know it was so it it had it 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 was it had just the right doses of everything like it had just the right dose of kind of childhood struggle you know um she had a hip defect i mean she is just stunningly gorgeous right but it painted a portrait of a of a child who was kind of bullied and rejected which is possible right it's possible that 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 there were various ways in which children rejected her um but um i was so humiliated i'm not worthy and then her protection of the children all of this is possibly true oh even did you guys note the best detail in the story who does she her children have playdates with Oh, yes. This is amazing. Huma Abedin. Yes. Um, and yes. Who gives like great quotes about like what they share and and how. George- yeah, her quotes just irritated me the most because it was that it was another trope I can't stand, which is like she's just a regular person who feeds hot dogs to her children. It's like I hate that. It's like the Ivanka Trump thing where like mm-hmm. it makes you a regular person because you feed food to your children. <laughs> that isn't, you know. <laughs> I, I, my mom only Mario ever, Batali. Exactly. It's like, well, it's just, <laughs> that would be problematic. Well, what do you guys think about the notion, though? Okay, like setting aside this weird fashion power thing, which I personally think is just gross. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that I don't work in the fashion industry. But okay, like let's presume that Georgina Chapman knew that her husband was. Let's let's presume that she thought he was cheating on her, and she sort of turned a blind eye because she was getting things out of this marriage, right? Um, you know, she was she was getting some measure of independence, of confidence, of um, success. And, you know, she thought it was the actions of a loving husband who was sort of using his connections to grease the wheels for her. Um, if if we take that reading, uh, you know, is it unfair for her to be punished for the sins of her husband? If she was complicit to a certain point, but not complicit in a like um, with a with sexual assault, let's say. Yeah. I kind of think so. I mean, as much as I, I agree with you, Noreen, my gut response is sort of skeeviness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that <laughs> profile was almost like a joke. I mean, you know, the humble beginnings, her father's humble origins and, and uh, you know, her good friends, David Oyelowo and, and Neil Gaiman, you know, making their quotes. And, oh, you know, she only really ever had two boyfriends before she hooked up with this guy, you know, like... Whatever. Do I think she's complicit? Probably not. You know, it's a different level of complicity of kind of turning a blind eye, right? Like you make certain compromises to build a certain life and you ignore certain things about your certain life. And lots of people do that. But instead, the the profile of her was, you know, I am unworthy. I'm so humiliated. I'm such a bad person. I have to protect the children. Instead of a genuine reckoning, which, mm-hmm. you know, you could create a tiny little space for that, even in a Vogue profile, in which you said, you know, I had to think about the fact 
of, you know, whether I was complicit in some way, whether my husband strong-armed people into wearing my dresses and how much that had to do with me building my career. And I will have to think about that for the rest of my life instead of this orchestrated, shut all the questions down, Anna Wintour's on my team, Neil Gaiman's on my team, like, I have the right team. We're done. And Huma Baden. <laughs> Huma. Huma. Exactly. It's just like I have, you know, I have rallied the correct, beautiful people, and I'm back now five minutes later. You know, um, it's not a model for for rehabilitation. I don't know that that, you know, she needs to be collateral damage to her husband's monstrousness. But this this is not a, a, a model of truth and reconciliation. Yeah. And again, you know, it's hard to, to judge these people or it's hard to extrapolate from an example like uh, Georgina Chapman, who, you know, will now go, yes, has to move out of her West Village, you know, mansion townhouse, whatever we call it, and move up to, you know, surely a fabulous farm upstate where she'll be surrounded by her famous friends. Like, she's not really suffering. Well, she may be suffering. But yeah, yeah, but But, I mean, in terms of like existential, yeah, I'm sure she feels very bad. I'm sure it it was really horrible, but But she can provide for her family. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, if you have any thoughts about Marquesa or about Georgina Chapman, please share them with us either on our Facebook page or at doublexgabfest at slate.com. So let's do our recommendations. June, what do you have? Okay, so I have two. One is very limited because you have to be in New York or in Brooklyn. I recently went to do a... um, uh, a workshop, an indigo dyeing workshop and sort of stenciling and decorating workshop organized by this place called Curious Corners, uh, which is essentially run by a Japanese woman. And they are sort of two hour, three hour workshops in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And they are amazing. And if you've ever had just the vaguest interest in doing any such thing, Sayaka-san is awesome and really patient and you will make something amazing. Uh, and it's relatively inexpensive. Um, curi- I just Googled. There's one on May 26th. For example. Maybe I'll see you there. Wait, so how do you do it? You just make an appointment and then you, and you, then you, and there, then you. There are two, they do do workshops and then you can do private workshops. So you can also just take your own items for dyeing. You can just bring, it's called bring your own dyeing, B-Y-O-D. Um, but I do recommend <laughs> the workshops the first time around because uh, Indigo is kind of fascinating and um, they will, uh, Sayaka-san will, will show you how. Um, but more broadly, the ex- something that expands a little bit beyond Brooklyn. Um, I think other people have even recommended this already. Certainly there have been segments on the Culture Gab Fest about it, but the BBC America show Killing Eve is really good. No, that's my recommendation. It's so good. <laughs> it's, at first, I, I, I didn't want to be like, seduced by it because I'm not into like oh god murderous women and oh she's got a like a sort of weird crush slash obsession with a straight woman oh no I didn't there was so much I didn't want and then I started to watch it oh my god it's so good <laughs> and I I praise uh I credit Phoebe Waller-Bridge yeah I, Waller-Bridge. I credit Phoebe Waller-Bridge for for her involvement because it's just a little bit different and a little bit off and it's god it's so good and the acting is I agree amazing. it also I'm just going to jump onto your recommendation because it's also got sort of variations of Gina Haspel. You know, there's just kind of every variety of the lady spy, uh, from psychopath lady spy to the kind of genial middle-aged lady spy <laughs> to the kind of older, you know, career lady spy. I mean, it really has uh, – it's, it's, it's a very female show. Um, and, and I've been watching it along with Handmaid's Tale. Those are the oh. two things that I'm watching at, <laughs> right now. And even though there's a lot more killing on Killing Eve, it's just like a lot easier. You know, the torture porn question is not so high on your mind that the way it is this season with Handmaid's Tale, where it's like, did, did it does it really need to be this kind of glossy and sexy? It's just clearly like of a James Bond sort of slick feel to the killing, which is somehow more palatable than the kind of emotional depths I see Nareen has a response to, to this. Well, I, I just want to know how your dreams are right now. Like, are, you, know, are you just having nightmares? Well, you know how I cleansed it? I cleansed it by watching the SNL skit about Handmaid's Tale uh, yeah. after watching Handmaid's Tale because it just kind of wipes it away. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Noreen, you go. I'm going to share June's recommendation. Okay, well, I have two, so <laughs> people won't be out in the street. Um, they are both 
one is a Netflix comedy special that's already out and one is an upcoming Netflix comedy special. Um, uh, I think I might have recommended the first Ali Wong special when we it talked came about out. It we talked about it. Okay, that's what we did. So her first, um, her first Netflix comedy special was called Baby Cobra and she famously was pregnant in it. And on Mother's Day, she dropped her second one where she is pregnant again. And this one is called Hard Knock Wife. And it's very much a sequel to the first one, right? So... There was a there was a huge setup in the first one with like how she was making more money from, than her husband. That like theme comes through again. She talks in very vivid detail about uh, the postpartum body, both her own and a friend's. She she makes jokes about um, race and sex again. It's very much if you like the first Ali Wong special, it's not as sort of like it, the first one felt like surprising and inventive, and this is like a new person that you're thrilled to like know about this one's like oh yeah ali wong again um so if you like her check it out and then the other one i saw hannah gadsby who did a comedy set called or a comedy show called nanette um in new york and it's coming to netflix i believe sometime next month she is from tasmania of all places um which she like makes some good comic hay uh on in her set um she is really 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 funny and charming um she is a lesbian comic and a lot of the beginning of her show is about that and the first half of the show you sort of think like this is just a really funny person and then the show takes a turn where um she sort of breaks down what comedy is and it it and it's and she breaks down what comedy is in the context of bad men, right? And like why why we you know, what genius is, what we celebrate and how you joke about these things and how you don't joke about these things and what is the work that the joke is doing that it's setting up tension and relieving it. And it's like no comedy set I've ever seen. And comics love to talk about how like you know, they're pushing boundaries by like saying things that are in bad taste. And it's like, oh, you're not pushing that many boundaries. Like I've heard a racist joke before. It's not you're not like doing anything inventive here. But this was truly inventive. And the reaction in the room was um, no one knew what to think about the second half of the show. Um, so maybe I kind of want to if if you guys are interested, I might want to talk about this on the Gabfest. But if not, um, people should really people who are interested in comedy and yeah, people who are interested in comedy and feminism and um, the way those two things uh, can play together and whether they should play together um, should check this out. It's Nanette by um, Hannah Gadsby. Wow. That sounds great. Yes. Sounds really great. I have. A, do you want me to recommend a novel? I'm reading a great novel. Yeah. It's actually very relevant. Sure. It's called Theory of Bastards by Audrey Shulman, S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N, about a primate researcher. It's really fabulous. I'm pretty feminist, too. All right. Well, that is our show today. Thanks to our fabulous producer, Fairlyn Williams, to our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. And remember, listeners, we really want your suggestions for a new name for our show. We are trying not to be double X anymore. We need a great idea for a new name, and we would love your suggestions. So either email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com with ideas or tweet us at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, or at Hannah Rosen. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and look for us in your feeds next week. 